0: Good morning. <laughs> the lights are brighter in here than they are in the sanctuary. <laughs> so uh, I'm normally an 815 worshiper, so let me just take a minute to, to look around, see some new faces, see some faces I know. <laughs> Hi, Lynn. I hope everyone's having a wonderful and blessed holiday season. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Austin. I am privileged today to give our pastoral staff a well-earned break on this Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Do we have any readers here today? Show of hands. Oh, come on. Don't be shy. So, I love a good story. I love a good novel but I also love history. I love well-written stories about the people and events of the past that have shaped our present. A few of you know that I'm writing my first novel. It's It's a rather humbling experience. Here's a little tip. Being an English major, having a daughter that's a librarian, and being a lifelong reader does not automatically mean you can write a story that works. In preparing this sermon today, I read today's text many times, as well as the verses on either side of it. As with any scriptural passage, I strove to understand why the author included this passage in this form at this point in the gospel. It finally dawned on me that Matthew knew how to tell a good story. And in so doing, he illuminates something important about those first days and weeks of Jesus' life, something that might serve us well in the year ahead. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before you at this time of year celebrating the birth of the one truly extraordinary person, your Son, Jesus the Christ. As we explore the beginning of his life on earth, help us to gain greater understanding of our role as ordinary people in the ongoing revelation of your kingdom here on earth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Just to be clear, by story, I don't mean something made up. Scientists who study how the human brain works tell us that our brains are naturally wired to com- comprehend the world through narrative. And the basic story structure goes something like this We exist in our ordinary world, something happens to throw that world into chaos we then struggle to restore order. Sometimes we must go to extraordinary lengths to restore that balance. In the end, we succeed or fail in the attempt, but either way, the world is never quite the same as it was before that something happened. The Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann summarizes this pattern very succinctly in his book, Spirituality of the Psalms. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. In the first part of the second chapter of Matthew, Mary has given birth to Jesus, and three wise men from the east have followed the Messiah's star to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. King Herod, having the despot's usual network of secret police informants, finds out about the wise men and intercepts them before they can find the child. When he hears their story, he is immediately frightened. Herod consults the chief priests and scribes and sends the wise men to Bethlehem with instructions to let him know when they find the Messiah. The wise men do find Jesus and give him the expensive gifts they brought with them, but they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod and to leave Jerusalem by a different route than they came. We pick up there with verse 13 of chapter 2 and go through to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after the wise men from the east had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the lord through the prophet out of egypt i have called my son when herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men he was infuriated and he sent and killed sent for and killed all the children in and around bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life Are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Good stories follow a certain structural pattern and are populated with a range of characters playing various roles. Sometimes the hero seeks a goal and the villain tries to block the hero from attaining that goal. Sometimes the hero's goal is to block the villain from his goal. They drive the story forward by their actions and reactions. Sometimes the hero and villain seem bigger than life because of what they accomplish or perhaps how miserably they fail. And it's only natural that in hindsight, we often perceive these characters as extraordinary people. But it's also important that we are able to identify with with both of them as ordinary people, even as they do extraordinary things. For a story to have real impact, we must understand what the hero risks by failure. And if the hero succeeds, we need to believe that in the right circumstances, we might actually do what the hero has done. We also need to identify, at least on some level, with the villain. We don't have to like the villain. We only need to understand the human motivations that drive him or her to act the way they do. The hero and villain need major supporting characters that either help the hero along his or her journey or help the villain stand in the hero's way. Minor characters can show up to serve a specific purpose and then may never be heard from again. Today's passage has all of these. Jesus is the hero of the whole gospel, of course. But in the context of our passage today, Jesus, the newborn babe, is not really a character. He does not act. He is simply the catalyst for the actions of others. So who is the hero? Well, not so fast. Let's look at the other characters first. We know who the villain is. Herod used his father's connections to get himself appointed provincial governor of Galilee at age 25 and was unexpectedly appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate at age 33. For 40 years, he maintained that position through a combination of adept political maneuvering, military prowess, and brutal oppression and told his death from an excruciatingly painful disease. <laughs> you know, God forgive me, but I had felt a certain amount of ex- righteous glee when I heard that little tidbit. In our story, when Herod's secret police told him about the three wise men and their search for the Messiah, he was both intelligent enough and paranoid enough to realize that anyone who made a credible claim to be the true Messiah could easily incite the Jewish people to rebel against him and the Roman oppressors. In walk the three wise men. We never see them again after this passage, but they play an important role. They are the first people outside of the Holy Family to recognize the true identity of Jesus. And they unwittingly trigger Herod's paranoia when he learns they are searching for the child who has been born king of the Jews. When Herod learns they have tricked him by leaving without telling him where the child is, he reacts with a savage atrocity that can only further alienate him from the people he governs. Mary is not referred to by name in this passage, but we know who she is, and that as his mother, she is a significant part of Jesus' earthly life from beginning to end and beyond. She is not explicitly active in this passage, but her action as the mother of the child is implied. God's messengers make no less than five appearances in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. But it's their role as God's messengers that is important, and as such, they are just his stand-ins. So you might say God is the major player in our text, perhaps even the hero. After all, he is the motive force behind the incarnation, and therefore the motive force behind the good news of salvation made manifest in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. But there's a problem with casting God as hero. God is all powerful and God is all knowing. Matthew wants us to know his role in this story, but God lacks one essential characteristic of a hero he cannot fail. In fact, it is this very characteristic that has led Western literature to abhor what the Greeks called the deus ex machina, or God in the machine solution to a story. A story is not meaningful if the hero cannot fail. A story does not help us learn how to succeed in a given situation if it does not also show us the possible consequences of failure. And we learn how to act and the consequences of not acting through our identification with a fallible hero as well as our perception of the villain's humanity. So, we have a villain, King Herod. We have major and minor supporting characters. So, who is the hero of our text if not God or Jesus? Who's left? Come on now, this is a test. (laughs) All right, Joseph. Now, to be sure, some Bible commentators have not been kind to Joseph. One particularly negative commentary reads, personally considered, Joseph has no spiritual significance and very little place at all in the gospel history. I'm sorry, that's just wrong. Joseph is a working man and a man of faith, just an ordinary person much like you or me. He becomes engaged to a young woman. Orientation. His ordinary world. And then his world tumbles into chaos. His young bride is pregnant with a child that is not his. When he tries to do the decent thing and let her go quietly so as not to shame her, In public, a messenger of God tells him not only to take Mary as his wife, but tells him what he should name the child as well. What does Joseph do? He takes Mary as his wife, waits for the child to be born, and then names the child as instructed. Joseph is visited again by an angel of the Lord who tells him this is the beginning of our text, to take the mother and child and flee to Egypt because Herod is hunting them down. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What would you be experiencing at this point? Disorientation. After they live in exile for some unspecified amount of time, Joseph is visited a third time by an angel of the Lord and told to take the child and his mother back to Judea but he finds out that Herod's son Archelaus is ruling over Judea and is warned one more time in a dream so he goes not back to his home but to the district of Galilee balance is restored but Joseph's world has changed irrevocably reorientation how does Joseph cope with all of this Did he argue with God? Did he contemplate ignoring the angel and leaving Mary anyway? Did he want to flee to somewhere else other than Egypt? Or did he think he could tough it out in Bethlehem on his own? Maybe. We don't know. And Matthew understood that ultimately it doesn't matter. Because when it came down to it, Joseph An ordinary person chose to obey God. Joseph alone in our story had the hero's potential to fail with negative consequences for himself and those he cared about. He could have failed to be a faithful follower of God, and he could have failed to carry out the responsibility he accepted the moment he decided not to leave Mary and her child. But through his actions of obedience and accepted responsibility, the infant Jesus survived the wrath of Herod. Joseph, by choosing to act in accordance with his faith, is the real hero of this particular story. Joseph, living an ordinary life, was confronted with extraordinary circumstances. Extraordinary circumstances are those that we do not expect for which we are not fully prepared. Extraordinary circumstances confront us and force us to struggle. They cause us to search for a way to return our lives to the way they were before we were confronted. There are many ways to deal with extraordinary circumstances. Perhaps the most common way is to pretend the situation doesn't exist, to deny that the world has changed. Instead, we try to find an explanation that allows us to believe that the situation isn't really extraordinary after all. When denial doesn't work, we often try to hold somebody else responsible, as if attaching blame might make the situation go away, or at least relieve us of the need to deal with it. Sometimes we just assume that we have to do something about it, that it is up to us to resolve the situation, to fix it, to wrestle it to the ground until it no longer looks extraordinary and we can pretend that we conquered the situation, that we accomplished something in the process. But there is another way, a way that we often don't get to until it seems that all is lost. What did Mary do when the angel told her, a virgin, that she was pregnant with the holy child? Let it be. What did Joseph do when he found out Mary was pregnant? He listened to the angel and abandoned his plan to end the betrothal and leave her. Accepting the guidance of the Lord, he took on the responsibility of becoming her husband and the child's father. When he learned that Herod sought to destroy the child, he listened to God and packed up Mary and her child and took them to Egypt. When told to take the mother and child back to Jerusalem, he did so. When warned against returning to Judea, he went to Galilee instead." Did Joseph ask for the guidance he received from God? Did he get down on his knees and pray? Maybe. Matthew doesn't tell us if he did. When he had his dreams, did Joseph argue with the messenger? Like maybe some other Bible characters we know? We certainly couldn't blame him if he did, can we? He was just an ordinary person. No different than you or me, really but Jesus is the focus of the gospel. Matthew cares about the outcome. Whether Joseph tried to deny the situation or blame someone else or determined that he had to solve the problem on his own or argued with the angel or did anything else other than obey the messenger's instructions, those things are not the point as far as Matthew is concerned. Matthew had enough storytelling sense to know that he didn't need to tell us what Joseph was going through. We know because we've been there. Instead, Matthew shows us the important part that ultimately Joseph listened and obeyed. When confronted with extraordinary circumstances, he needed help. And when he received God's guidance, in the end, he accepted the reality of the situation. He set aside all his doubts, resisted the temptation to pass off the responsibility to somebody else, abandoned his own drive as a man to fix the situation, and did what God instructed. May we, in the new year ahead, be as ordinary and humble as Joseph, and when confronted with the extraordinary circumstances of life, have the faith and humility to listen to God as we struggle to restore order to our chaotic world.